time of Reagan and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. Well, you know, Mike, it's nice to know that James Belushi, when acting as himself, is just as much of an asshole as you think he is. Well, I is he acting? <laughs> I, that, that's the thing with him appearing in stuff is just just he's a very punchable man. But yeah, see, see our last episode, oh of podcast, Livista baby. Thankfully, that's the most he's going to appear in an Arnold movie. <laughs> so, of course, we are talking about a movie that does have a brief Belushi cameo, but we are talking about Last Action Hero, the um action comedy that arnold did in 1993 directed by john mctiernan of predator fame which we talked about earlier who also did die hard and hunt for red october with a screenplay that has a bit of a weird story behind it it was started out written by zach penn who would later do x-men 2 and 3 early drafts of a lot of marvel superhero mm-hmm. movies around mm-hmm. the 2000s and then the screen was given a total overhaul by Shane Black. That's, of course, the guy who wrote the first two Lethal Weapons, Last Boy Scout, The Monster Squad, Long Kiss Goodnight, and uh, would later write and direct The Nice Guys, Iron Man 3. So a lot of stuff happening there. Yeah. And uh, to dive into this movie with us, of course, is somebody who's new to this show, but not new to the Radio versus the Martians umbrella of podcasts, Roz Townsend. Hello. I survived my latest game of chicken. Oh. <laughs> in the real world that plays out very differently. Yeah. We found. I have so many injuries right now. <laughs> so Roz, one of the people one of the questions that we ask people who come on the show for the first time is are what is your history with the films of Arnold Schwarzenegger? And are you a fan of the guy? It is quite sad how little Schwarzenegger I've seen. Um, I don't know why you keep having me come on this pod or any podcast, really, considering my complete, like, I don't know, my repertoire of pop culture is comparable to that of, like, a Tibetan yak. I... (laughs) So I haven't seen much. That, like you can't be, you cannot be as inexperienced to say Sean Duncan was, and we brought him on. I mean, he's the guy who didn't, he didn't even know the spoiler behind Soylent Green. So don't Whoa. worry, you, you are not our sort of least traveled Arnold fan. <laughs> Is it weird? Yet. Okay, to digress just a tiny bit, my the knowledge of my spoiler of Soylent Green was a Rocco's Modern Life reference, of course. Yes. So, but just <laughs> such a. Chewy chicken is people. Right. Chewy chicken is people. But um, the it it was so Arnold Schwarzenegger. It, it's a pop culture sort of thing that you'll see in references, and he's the kind of guy that you see in everything. But I've only ever seen bits of his movies, or I was too young to remember them, sure. or that sort of thing. So the fact that I was able to sit down and actually watch one of his movies all the way through, I thought was pretty amazing and i feel like i have street cred now that yeah. i never would have before achievement unlocked i know right <laughs> i'm an adult now so are you a fan of arnold would you say i mean you weren't before after seeing the uh, 1993's last action hero <laughs> are you now a fan of arnold schwarzenegger i kind of am oh, okay yeah. 
that's that's high praise. I'm a convert. Like I would watch more stuff with him in it now. That's and great. I, it it's almost like I'm a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> you, you finally got back the last 25 years. You were finally back to nominal state in the mid 90s. Yeah, there we go. Well, Roz, we usually ask our guests to come on if they could, and maybe about a paragraph if you could summarize the plot of Last Action Hero. Okay. Uh, it's a little kid, and he likes movies. Uh, this is why I'm not allowed to do professional voice acting work, but here we go. Um, uh, it's essentially a kid that sort of escapes into action films, and he has this one sort of action hero that he's really into. And he ends up uh, watching all of these movies and has is really knowledgeable and has kind of a hard life, but this is how he kills his time. And then you will see him get a magic ticket mm-hmm. from a guy that is the projectionist at this mo- like weird movie theater that he sees all of the movies in. And the magic ticket was from Houdini, who mm-hmm. obviously was a wizard, because that's <laughs> just what you do. Clearly. And the magic ticket allows this latest movie that the child has seen uh, to co- become... Well, there's a portal that uh, arises and from the ticket being ripped and the kid goes in and then, yay, it's all a thing and now you're in the movie. Mm. And he starts interacting with the action hero who's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger and it, there's a lot of heavy metal music and it's <laughs> unnecessary explosions and a guy gets an ice cream cone through his head. I think that's a really salient plot point. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as... Time goes on, various characters enter and exit this sort of uh, f- uh, fantasy space within the film and enter the real world, and uh, they start sort of, there are repercussions associated with that. Nice. Okay. That's very good. This is the metafictional Arnold movie. Yeah, well, this is the being John Malkovich before being John Malkovich. I guess the world just was not ready for that kind of a meta movie. Yeah, the outside of the plot of this movie, this was the movie that was seen as a massive stumbling block for Arnold, that he had a decade and a half of massive hits, that if he was in a movie, it would open huge, it would make big numbers, it would become a massive juggernaut at the cinemas. And this is the the one that wasn't, that oh. I don't think people knew how to process this movie when it came out, because I think I look at how people take in movies and pop culture now, it's very different than 93 well, like I, I feel like this is, but I feel like the story of this of this sort of action movie vehicle is plays out a lot. Like I guess the example I was thinking of is like Wild Wild West for Will Smith, is that you have like these successive summers where it's like his movies, Men in Black, or like the, like the biggest thing ever, and then you how do you follow up the biggest thing ever? There's got to be a stumble somewhere, and it's just going to be embarrassing and whatever. In this case, actually, I think this is a really great movie it's just not what people were expecting of arnold schwarzenegger coming off of terminator 2 well that's a big part of it too is that like i said we we process and we digest pop culture differently in 2018 than in 1993 the idea of being metatextual and having fun with tropes that appear in movies and like a general audience knowing about cliches and ideas and behind the scenes stuff because back then you didn't know anything about how movies were made how the sausage was made Unless the studio made a little promotional thing to show you, sure. And I well, you were a devotee of of Entertainment Tonight, which yeah, yeah. I mean, and even then, that I, was I, mostly just PR people. Show. Is, aren't characters aren't people from Entertainment Tonight 
in this movie isn't like Loads Lisa, Lisa, of them. Lisa Gibbons is in this movie or something yeah yeah but the the idea that we're having fun by pointing out the the cliches while indulging in those cliches sure. and loving those cliches at the same time hmm. is something that I don't think people like nowadays uh, this sort of thing I think would go off so much better because people are totally ready to look at the metatextual Arnold there's an element of sophistication to it that maybe at the time the average person watching wanting to watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger film didn't really want, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it certainly was a was about expectations that were dashed because people were expecting something that was ridiculous that was ridiculously violent and and Arnold. Right. And this is Arnold, but this is like it's like Looney Tunes Arnold. Yeah, is essentially what it is, um, which is actually fine because. What other way can what other way can you you put more imagination into a Schwarzenegger movie? He's never going to do like a "What Dreams May Come" kind of movie where <laughs> Why the not? concept the concept of the movie is so much bigger than him, and he has to sort of. I just want to find my dead wives. <laughs> this is this is as good as it gets for him. He gets the 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 most the most imaginative he can get is play a character and play himself at the same time. Like do, it's. Do you think the world of 1993, like, was the average consumer of movies more genre-tied? Like, do you think someone went, well, I'm watching action movies, that's all I really like. And if they know. saw I mean, anything outside of that, it might I kinda... feel like this was. I feel like this really was marketed more towards children. I mean, if you even huh. look at the poster, you kind of see, oh, there's a kid there. It's like, and uh, I gotta say, Austin O'Brien, who plays Danny, who's the, he's the protagonist <laughs> in this movie, really. Yeah. He certainly carries this movie a hell of a lot better than Edward Furlong did. <laughs> He's a much better actor, especially who has to play a lot of comedy in this movie as well. And this is a movie that wants to do a lot tonally. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. think people are sort of prepared for that. Because if you watch Predator, you know from the beginning what you're getting with Predator. Where at, this one is like a spoof, but it's also, I think, in many ways the best kind of spoof. Because it seems to really love the things it's making fun of. Mm-hmm. Like there's a bit where Arnold goes to his... Was it like his second, his favorite second cousin's favorite, house? Yes. <laughs> and his favorite second cousin has already been kidnapped by the villain in this movie. Played by Anthony Quinn of Anthony all people. Anthony Quinn. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. He's doing a, a full 360. <laughs> and, uh, and he uh, sees his friend. His friend dies and gives him this information that, of course, he, the, the bad guys wanted Arnold to get. And there's this cool little bit where he finds this thing of cue cards in the guy's pocket. And he goes, like, five? The next one's four? three and he's like it's a bomb and he runs out and what i love is that it's such a ridiculous thing that the more you think about that moment the less sense it makes Mm -hmm. that the bomb could be tied to arnold finding these cue cards (laughs) but it's that ridiculousness that i love because it's the sort of thing that wouldn't work in most movies but this movie is kind of like taking your standard lunatic you know super cop taking on the bad guys type premise and then turns it up to 11. So things are a little bit more ridiculous. Things are a lot, like the bad guys literally are throwing Acme dynamite at him oh, yeah. earlier in the movie. Yes, they are. I, I was going to say, it definitely has that level of ridiculousness, but you're following these characters and you actually, I, I don't know, on my part anyway, you become attached to them enough to where the bits toward the climax of the movie where it's actually quite heartfelt and sort of sad because he's legitimately dying of a gunshot wound to the yeah. chest. Yeah. You, you follow that and you're like, okay, they were 
were they were throwing Acme Dynamite, you know, an hour ago. But this, no, don't don't let him die. You got to send him back. Like, I don't know. I liked the the whole range of silliness, but actual emotion was kind of there too. Yeah, I mean, this movie exists with two for that reason. This movie exists in basically two halves. It exists in a, in the movie world when Danny gets sort of blown into a stick of dynamite goes through the screen and blows him into mm-hmm. Jack Slater's car when he's in, in this chase, um, where it basically ends up with, it, is, it ends up so Looney Tunes that it's like him hanging off of the, you know, hanging off the side of a broken elevator, and he's, <laughs> you know, the part of the elevator comes off, and he has it in his hands, and he just sort of lets go and falls down. It kind of like I loved how Wiley that was, Coyote. It's like yeah. totally Wiley Coyote. I loved how that was just a huge piece of like plywood painted <laughs> yes. gold. By the way, yeah. that was like my favorite thing. But- and then, but the second half of the movie is, which I think is what actually makes this movie a lot more interesting, is they enter the real world, um, and the bad guy who is not actually Anthony Quinn, the real antagonist, is Charles Dance from Game of Thrones. <laughs> from Game of Thrones, playing Benedict, who is a assassin, who's a sharpshooter assassin with a with one glass side that's that he interchanges is amazing yeah let's just say that without that the foil of this movie being charles dance and his character who's this confident sarcastic hitman um who's he's he's constantly like calling anthony quinn who he works for like used to seal in schmuck and correcting his grammar <laughs> it's, it's it's fantastic i love it the idea of sort of a put-upon middle management villain who becomes sentient over the course of this movie that... yeah he talks to the screen at one point so he's so he's kind of like i likened him to uh khan in wrath of khan yeah at a certain there's a, there is a change in the movie and the villain has to figure out what the, the stakes of the game are so khan does that you know at the very beginning when Chekhov beams down and he's like oh i gotta f-. he reverse engineers what's going on mm-hmm. um same with charles dance he is the one character in from the from the movie universe that doesn't have to have things explained to him, that slowly figures things out and then decides that he wants to become the villain in the real world because, hey, the bad guys can win in the real world. I love that whole sequence when he's in the real world, like, figuring things out. Yes. Where he sees the the poor kid that's killed for his shoes and he's like, really? A pair of shoes? (laughs) He's like, like, no one's screaming. He's, like, working stuff out in the part where he goes into the gas station. Yes. And he's like, yeah, do you mind if I test a theory? (laughs) And the guy's like, yeah, what can I do? And he just, like, kills him. (laughs) He said, I shot someone and I did it on purpose. (laughs) And then people are just telling him to shut up (laughs) it's so 90s new york to me too i I actually had a question for both of you as more technically aligned film nerds Hmm. the use of color between the um fictional world and the real world Mm -hmm. really struck me yeah i thought it was fascinating to watch especially because it's all like the move like the action movie sort of sequences were all very like pop 90s colors with like the pinks and everything and then like you get into the real world and it's dingy and gross and And gray and wet yeah and things are really starkly lit with like neon blue and weird things like that i thought it was because i mean arnold's jack slater character wears this bright red shirt under the leather jacket Mm -hmm. and it just pops off the screen when he's in his los angeles this fictional cartoon world and it becomes sort of a dark red when he moves into the real world right and i do like the the moments where these characters are sort of finding out that they're they're fictional and how they deal with it. Mm-hmm. And of course Benedict figures out it's like 
oh hey the cops don't show up right away that i could i can you know commit violence in public and nobody cares there's an extra just walking around in the background when he shoots that guy and the guy doesn't even react to it right um but yeah i mean but counter to that too the one thing that we haven't discussed is that um so danny realizes the first one to realize he's in a movie and he spends a half an hour trying to convince arnold and doing uh, some of these things are really clever i think they're really good like for example going to a blockbuster video to convince him that Oh wait, you're just Arnold Schwarzenegger, so I'm going to show you an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And they they go by and they see a, a stand up cutout for Terminator Two, and it pans up and it's Stallone, yeah, right. Sylvester Stallone <laughs> instead of him. Like some of those things are really clever. Like writing, like I think he writes "fuck" or yeah, something that was on a piece of paper, part, and he's yeah. like, "Say this," and he he said, "I can't say that." And he says, "You can't. Of course you can't. This is a PG thirteen movie." <laughs> I love that. I yes. love that he's I, like he doesn't until he sees the portal between worlds. Jack Slater cannot accept. <laughs> The reality. The best bet was during that whole sequence where he writes fuck on the piece of paper. Did you notice that he had like an exploded cigar oh, yes. that he was just kind of <laughs> chewing on? He, not only he had the exploded cigar, but uh, they trigger a bomb and they, it cuts to like, you know, a mile away and the house just blows up. And then the scene smash cuts to them back in the chief's office. And they're just like, just like Looney Tunes. There's, there's like hair smoking and there's soot on their faces, but everyone's okay. <laughs> Oh, and the screaming police captain, and it's just right. it, it, the the Jack Slater world is kind of, and this makes sense because um, Shane Black was writing it, that it really is kind of a crazy lethal weapon kind of vibe to it, where you have the lunatic super cop that runs around blowing up half of Los Angeles, and the most he will ever get is chewed out, mm-hmm. and that he's just this unstoppable force, and like we see a bit of the finale of. Uh, Jack Slater 3, which is at the beginning of the movie, where, of course, he fails to to save his son from this guy called the Ripper. Yeah, by, right. played by Tom Noonan and lots of makeup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's it's pretty crazy because you, you have this um, these little elements that really show that these people who made Last Action Hero know these other movies, like... The the thing earlier where they blow up his second cousin's house, one of the cops is just literally blown up into a tree. And as he's dying, he just goes, two days till retirement. And this like lethal weapon saxophone yeah. comes into the, <laughs> into the score. It is so funny when you think about it, because originally the script was written as a parody of like Shane Black kind of cop movies. And then Shane Black gets put on to rewrite the movie, essentially. <laughs> And one that, of the guys to rewrite the movie. And one of the things yeah. I just kind of love is that it is, you take the stuff that you would have done in those movies to be taken serious, and then you ratchet up just a little bit, so a guy can be killed by an ice cream cone and paling <laughs> the back of his skull, and Arnold can just look back and just go, iced that guy, to cone a phrase. <laughs> no, no! I had wiped that from my memory. I, and, I wanted to ask, so this, this script had many rewrites. It's a lot, like... and and I think uh, Bill Go- is it Bill Gold? Is that who the last writer? It not only didn't have uh, an original script, an original draft written by Zach Penn and the other guy whose name I can't remember. It had a huge set of rewrites from Shane Black, and then even after that, there was like I think it's Bill Gold or Bill Goldman came on to do- he was paid a million dollars to punch up the script. So it this you know unlike a Terminator or something where it was a singular vision 
from start to finish. Yeah. This was definitely like, oh, this is the, the, the Frankenstein meat grinder of studio movies. Yeah, I wonder what happened with the previous iterations of that script then. Um, this is just a lot of money, a lot of slot yeah. at stake, I guess. I think there was probably, it was probably lighter, I'm guessing, more of a kid's movie. And I think what Shane Black brought to it was the moments of just cartoon violence okay. and, and catchphrases. Mm. Like the, the fight that, that Jack Slater has in his house with the henchman is pretty great. And like I said, it's that, turn up to 11 moment where he crashes through a skylight grabs these two guys these two henchmen's machine guns and makes them shoot shoot each other other, and then like he electrocutes this dead henchman and makes him machine gun another guy yeah i mean this is all stuff that's just past the point where it's just into spoof territory but it feels legit i think because mctiernan the director is the guy who did die hard he knows how to do an action sequence and i think the strength of it is you do a ridiculous thing and you play it totally straight, but it's still a completely ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it it finds a way to work. Because, I mean, for as many people came in to, to write this and work on this, it's one, the movie is, is better than its reputation. But I think it's also, it's better than it has any right to be. Because I think the things that give it a sense of legitimacy, whether it's Shane Black or John McTiernan or Arnold Schwarzenegger, feel real. And I think it, it helps that, like you mentioned before with Charles Dance, the villain is great in this movie. Mm-hmm. And one thing that it kind of hit me, um, what this movie really reminded me of, there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Elementary Data, uh, My Dear Data. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the one where uh, Jordy and Data go onto the holodeck and accidentally create a sentient villain in the form of Professor Moriarty who has to grapple with the fact that he's fictional and and is living in essentially an entertainment device mm-hmm. and wants to to escape it. And you sort of see a bit of that with Benedict, but you also see it with the hero, with Jack Slater. And the thing that I really love, and this is the part where the movie actually not only just surpassed my expectations, but surprised me, is that normally you'd have a thing where he has to wander the streets and be sad on rooftops for a while to sort of find his equilibrium. Mm -hmm. But the thing that makes Jack Slater kind of go, okay, I'm in a world, things are okay now, I think I can handle this, is that Danny gets, you know, falls asleep, and it's just, he spends the night just talking to Danny's mom, having a normal Mm -hmm. conversation. And at the end of it, he's just like, I think I'm okay. And it's such yeah. a it's such a human moment for a guy who lives in a cartoon violent world to go. I've never gotten to be a normal person before. I mean, he they, never you, spoke to a regular woman right. before. Yes, I think right. They the play important- it they play it off as a as a joke several times where it's like, oh, in Jack Slater's world, there are no women who aren't supermodels mm-hmm. and wearing like chrome and like <laughs> or latex. dominatrix yeah. outfits or that weird motorcycle outfit from the George Michael <laughs> music video. <laughs> yes, I, I watched this movie with other people, and someone said you have to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> so okay it's it, been done. it very much feels like music video supermodel who are the women and you know the i think it's mercedes rule who played the mom on big mm-hmm. um so this is an actress who her mom is sort of her was sort of her forte obviously who plays the the sort of worried but stressed and worked working mother and she grounds she grounds the movie and then when she's in the scene with him it doesn't, you know, the the two levels of of sort of heightened reality tend to e- balance each other out, and that's that's kind of imp- impressive that they end up doing that. Mm-hmm. There's even a the sidelong reference to Danny says like, "Hope don't start talking about sex." Like, I think it's, <laughs> it's really it's really funny. I think some of this some of that stuff is done incredibly well, considering the previous time you saw the apartment was like him getting mugged 
broken in and mugged by just some low life, you know. Yeah, that that's the thing too is that it's not a fully non-movie universe that Danny lives in either. Yeah. It's kind of a death wish taxi driver universe where <laughs> yeah. he literally takes a step outside of his apartment and Im- immediately like a tweaker with a switchblade grabs him. <laughs> yep. It's like that guy is just waiting near the doors and just like, "Come on, man. Where's your stuff? Where's your stuff?" like that. And um it is of course the the antithesis to the less gritty, more cartoony, candy-colored version of Jack Slater's world. But the the interesting, uh, there's that little device where in both universes at one point, there's a bad guy that tells Danny to handcuff himself. Oh, yes. I always oh, really wow. liked that. Yeah, that's I didn't true. even notice yeah. that. And they sort of end differently because in, in the regular universe, you just get humiliated and robbed. Right. But in the other universe you can save the day. There's a way for you to come back that you mm-hmm. can fight somebody like that. Where in the real life, you're just like, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was a kind of interesting thing with it. I really do like when they do go into the, the real world and you know, what was Benedict's plan was sort of to unleash all of these villains. It's like, Hey, we can win in this world. And why not just unleash all of this, this horrible, these horrible characters and stuff. So he actually goes to Jack Slater three to get the last villain out. And he's like, Hey, we both hate this guy. Was anyone expecting Dracula to show up? Yeah, I guess so, sort of. of advertisement? He, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's decided that he's going to go w- watch a bunch of movies to try to find which villains to team up with. And you see him in a diner and I guess he's like coloring in blood on, uh, <laughs> Drem Stroker's Dracula on a little ad there. But yeah. Uh, but I, ha- I must say though that the, that they really do knock it out of the park because they're they're uh, watching the, the Ingmar Bergman movie. What I don't know, the, the Seven Seal, Seven Seal, yeah. And then uh, the person playing Death is Ian McKellen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. It is awesome. I, at the time, I pretty I know I did not know who Ian McKellen was. I didn't was, either, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but I didn't know who Charles Dance was either. But the, yeah. there was an I, the real world is supposed to be like so dark and scary. But there's also interesting sort of uplifting things when the characters from the fictional worlds will interact with it. Like, Ian McKellen is death. Yes. But he um, is talking to Danny toward the end and he goes, no, you die a grandfather. Like, that's that to me felt like such a nice sort of bleed through into, well, sometimes even in the real world, good things can happen. Yeah. I kind of his reaction to to Jack Slater, which is like, oh, you're not on any of my lists. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's fiction. I kind of I, there's a lot of things that I really love with it too. I like watching Jack Slater realize that he can't be movie Jack Slater in the real world. Of course, he he hurts his hand by punching a window out. <laughs> you see, he's surprised. He's like, "Wait, like, ah!" <laughs> uh, the chicken game is one of my favorite bits in the real world because you see how that sort of stuff works in the fictional world where. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit during the the chase with the ice cream and the dynamite mm-hmm. where a car does a jump and it explodes in midair before it hits the wall. <laughs> so that's the kind of car physics that he's used to dealing with. Thank you for reminding me of that, by the way. <laughs> Just burst into flames and then it gets the wall. Um, in this one, it's the most un- unflattering kind of weird filmed from a distance car yeah, chase done in a single take mm-hmm. yeah unlike done in like seven takes like and the other one was. it makes it so much more intense that way they yeah. could have probably drawn that out longer than they did but the fact that they kept it so contained i think made it all the scarier well uh, you know in the there's all the thing about blood too so you were talking about the sort of the visual differences between the fantasy world is that you when they're uh, the henchmen are attacking his daughter's his ex-wife's house and you see arnold blowing all these guys away Mm -hmm. um it looks just like 
PG violence because there's muzzle flashes on the gun and guys slink over immediately. There's no squibs. There's no blood mm-hmm. splatters anywhere. However, in the car crash scene, Ajab, or I guess it's Professor Toru Takanawa. It is. Uh, is he's... He's thrown out of the car, and his his face has scraped across the hood, and there's a trail of blood. Yeah, and you immediately you know you're like, oh, I'm in a totally different place because you don't see blood at all in the first half of the movie. You just yeah. don't. It's a really ugly car crash, and Arnold. And I, I like that Arnold doesn't. He goes into it even being he's like, well, my car is newer than theirs, so I have an airbag, and they don't, <laughs> and that's why he knew he could sort of survive it. But it still really hurt getting out of that car. He's like. Ah, damn it! Uh, but yeah, that other guy is just messed up. He's just straight up dead. Mm-hmm. But I, I love how it's filmed because it doesn't... It's kind of like that scene in Logan where they crash into the fence. Where oh, yeah. most action movies would give you this cool, spectacular, the fence bursts open moment. But having Hugh Jackman just get his car stuck in a fence is just kind of like... Oh, yeah, that's probably what would happen. <laughs> and this is how a car crash would probably really look. It hits hard, and one of the car kind of jumps up a bit. But then you just hear the guy di- dead on a horn over there, and you're just like, oh, geez. It, it's almost like the opposite of the suspension of disbelief, where like you're going, okay, I'm going to roll with this story, and these weird things might happen. And then something very realistic happens in the midst of that, and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh. Weird. Yeah, it's oh, it's... It's pretty great. Um, I'm, I liked this movie more than I expected to, and I already expected to like it more than I remembered it. I, I think this is one of those, like a lot of Arnold movies, where uh, I every single time I watch it, I like it more. So I think I watched it twice. I think I, I think I probably saw it in the theater, and I probably rented it once. So I probably saw it four times in my entire life. I like it more each time, which is something that usually with movies that are bombs or bad. You know, you you get a sense of oh, I'll watch it again just to see how bad it was, and this is that that completely does the opposite for me. It it, it redeems itself in ways that I just couldn't have remembered. It's it's aged remarkably well. I mean, there's places where, of course, it feels quaint or a little unfocused, like the the fictional world of Jack Slater has. I mean, of course, all the weird women in in sci fi fetish gear, which is like that doesn't seem really genre appropriate. I don't really know what's <laughs> happening there. Or cameos by Sharon Stone in the T one thousand, which are a little bit weird. But the big one, of course, being uh, Detective Whiskers, yes. the cartoon cat, voiced by Danny DeVito, <laughs> who saved the goddamn day. Yes, I might yeah. add, he just came part of the plot. And I guess if you take it from the point of view of this world is kind of broken when you go off of the rails of the script, it mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. But it is a little weird, and you kind of see myself thinking, well, if they made this movie again today with, like, Dwayne Johnson, I they probably would leave out the cartoon cat bit. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I love that that bit that, uh, of them partnering up the detectives, and they're usually like, it's the rabbi, and the, and the whatever. <laughs> and then it, by the end, it's like... It's like old Bogey, Humphrey Bogart, and <laughs> yeah. this detective, and it's just ripped from some, another movie, and it's just a black and white Humphrey Bogart standing there, and you're like, this is great. Yeah, this <laughs> is so bizarre. It's such a weird... Or the thing, too, with um, him trying to prove they're in a fictional world by saying, how can everyone have a 555 phone number? That means you can only have, you know, nine 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 thousand hundred hundred and ninety nine <laughs> things, and then Arnold just goes, um... That's why we have area codes. <laughs> and I was like, that is wonderful. Because the, he actually had an argument for that. Because I kind of love of him trying, trying to poke apart how this world just doesn't make any sense. But it's like there is a weird internal logic to it. And when it breaks, they just don't care. So do you suppose that... I'll, I'll throw this out to you guys. Do you suppose that 
obviously expectations were a big uh, a big part of the reason why this failed. Do you suppose that the reason is that some people don't either people don't like watching a movie where tropes are sort of broken open because people don't like finding out how like dumb movies really are and how they didn't realize <laughs> you know how they don't recognize that tropes exist until someone parodies them and they're like, "Oh, I didn't." Oh. I think it deals a lot with the cultural consciousness of your audience at any given time. I I really think that maybe in I I don't know, this sounds pretentious in hindsight. I'm like people in 93, they didn't know how to read. <laughs> Excuse me <laughs> while I push my glasses up on my nose. <laughs> but I, I do think that now we have things like TV tropes and I mean sure. I'll be completely honest when I first heard about some of the concepts behind this movie I'm like oh it's crossover fan fiction or what's called self-insert fan fiction where mm. the author will show up and start talking to the characters like that's a really common thing in fandom circles so I'm like oh that'll be great if I watch that as a movie because it's essentially the stuff that I've been reading since I was 15 or whatever but um I think the average audience at the time seeing those tropes kind of broken like you were saying might have been kind of jarring yeah well they, or that they just didn't they saw them broken and they didn't find it entertaining to have them broken i guess that might be the Maybe. bigger point well i think it's also the the triumph of fandom as a way to consume culture that we look at things now and say oh i can see what they're giving me a hint at i can see what all the easter eggs are yeah. i'm going to try to figure out Oh, I know what that thing is happening right there. I think this thing is going to happen later in this season. And people didn't do that back then. And I it, think a lot of people took it more at face value. And it could be that we're better at or more sophisticated, I'll say again, at recognizing the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And if it's yeah. done kind of ham fisted now, we're like, come on. It's like the Wilhelm scream in movies. I think that which is in that movie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, is it ever? It's right in the beginning. I think. Yeah. But I mean, there, people know what the Wilhelm scream is. Is they know what it's called, so they recognize it when it happens. Where it used to just be an in joke among sound engineers mm -hmm. that they would put it in there and they would giggle at each other. But we're much more in on this stuff than we ever were back then. And like I remember back when Back to the Future Two came out, people were confused by the plot of that movie. They didn't really understand the sci-fi concepts, but it's so old hat to everybody now that, you know, we are hashtag we are all nerds. But mm -hmm. I mean, we all <laughs> we all get it now or we all go. And even if you're not necessarily a proper nerd, that you can still kind of pick that stuff out just because it's something that's ubiquitous now. Everybody exactly. Knows that. Yeah, exactly. We we tear apart culture and digest it, and we because back then I think that if it wasn't you know oh, serious you know media, then people didn't treat it like serious media. But everybody treats everything as something to to pull apart and say, what does this mean? What is this hinting at? Does this fit with that? I think it's, what are the tropes of this thing? And loving them even while you see them mm -hmm. and make fun of them that is a remarkably modern thing that just wasn't done in ninety three. Is that a good thing? You think that we've started to get more critical even about the, sort of just the fluffy media that we're supposed to have fun with? Oh, yeah. I, th I think it totally is. I think that it means that we're going to get more stuff that is interesting and sophisticated <laughs> because audiences can handle it. If you think about how revolutionary Back to the Future was at its time, it's a movie about a guy trying to to undo the damage he's done to a timeline. That's a very sci-fi plot that until Steven Spielberg did it, probably would have gone over the heads of a lot of people in a mainstream audience. The idea of, 
oh, I get it now. He accidentally, you know, prevented the scenario that let his parents meet. And now he's going to fix that. And, and he's, you know, the idea of using the photograph. That's all, you know, old school stuff to people who are in the circles, like you mentioned, fandom circles, sci-fi mm-hmm. circles. We know that stuff backwards and forwards, but it's like novel and new to a bunch of people that are used to a much more straightforward narrative. And this movie, I think, was just kind of written by, I mean, the people who are making movies were clearly in that mindset. They were like, let's just have fun with the stuff that we talk about. And audiences weren't quite ready for it. But, you know, I think that they're ultimately justified because this is a movie that has become a bit of a cult film since then. So I think we should talk about, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of movie here. And I think this is one of those places, kind of like even the Terminator franchise is that, um, it's not Arnold's not in every shot and every screen. There's a lot of other stuff that's happening around him as a character, but uh, Arnold generally gets he's not he's not as bad as Keanu, but he gets the <laughs> he gets this sort of reputation of being like well he can't really act all that much. And in sort of previous movies that we have done before, especially like the Conan movies or whatever, he kind of seems like he's butting up against the his capability as an actor. And I think here he's absolutely and totally comfortable in this in this movie you can see like arnold does get to do the thing where he blows away the guy and smiles like he was saying he's arnold is always smiling doing this he's entirely comfortable being the sort of jerky the jerky hilarious hero or also the sad sack guy who's lost his way or the determined sort of more real hero in the end or uh, like he he is able to do all these things and there was never a moment where i'm like well i wish they would have you know they could have got a better actor to do this they could have got a Bruce Willis to do this or something like it 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 was obviously a vehicle that is built around him but I think he's totally up to the task for taking the movie and all of the emotional heights that it gets to I think it works better with Arnold than it would have with Bruce Willis Bruce Willis is already a much more grounded actor than Arnold Mm -hmm. and I think if you're building a cartoon world that has Looney Tunes physics Arnold already kind of feels like he doesn't obey the same physical laws that the rest of us do. (laughs) Yeah. So I was going to say the movie really plays to his strengths in that way, because like I think he's aware of the fact that he can get kind of wacky and cartoony in a way. And it it works well. Well, I mean, no, no, none of the really great uh, Arnold movies prior to this, uh, the filmmakers who made them, they had to have been aware of like. Oh, and yeah. what ways Arnold has done best. And so this movie says, well, we know how Arnold has done best. Now let's just like, just like completely flip it around, invert it, like turn up the volume essentially and see, <laughs> and see how we can, if we can stretch the kind of cartooniness of, of Arnold until it breaks. I'm actually, oh. I'm trying to think of what Bruce Willis was doing around that time. Was it like death becomes her is the movie I'm thinking. <laughs> it and might like be. now, now it's like, what if Bruce Willis and Arnold swapped places and Arnold was like the it, nerdy oh. guy and death becomes her. <laughs> that could be great. <laughs> I think he'd be totally game for that. Actually. Oh yeah, he would do it. Oh my God. But you'd have to like dress him up as a nerd, but it's still like Arnold. <laughs> yeah. I, it's weird. I think with Bruce Willis, though, I think this is the same thing. We've talked about Stallone having this issue as well, which is that Sylvester Stallone's a guy who on some level wants to be taken seriously because, you know, he got started in his career writing a screenplay that got, you know, that won an Oscar. And then he's just, oh, I'm a serious artist and stuff like this. And that he's also trying to be that and simultaneously sort of exist as a contemporary and rival to Arnold, where Arnold just kind of goes, I'm in a ridiculous movie and I'm having a lot of fun and I don't really care if I look silly doing it. I am visibly having fun in this movie and I'm kind of giving the audience permission to have fun too. And I think that with this kind of thing where you want 
not just a lethal weapon movie that he's going into, but something that's more cartoonish than a lethal weapon movie. That's sillier than a lethal weapon movie that has, you know, Acme dynamite in it. Uh, That's the sort of thing I think Arnold is totally game for that. He would never feel like a parking brake on it, trying to go to those places that, you know, he's like, yeah, of course, you know, frizz up my hair, put soot on my face. (laughs) There's never a bit where he's like, no, I think we should ground this a little bit. He's like, no, this is a cartoon. Let's have fun with this. Well, I, th- I because this was on the Wikipedia page, uh, I didn't know this, but part of the reason of the poor performance is that this opened the week after Jurassic Park. So, yeah. of course, Jurassic Park was the biggest movie that year, like clearly one of the biggest tentpole blockbuster movies in th- in that decade, uh, after Terminator 2, I guess. <laughs> um, and John McTiernan said, this is his, his uh, response about the failure of the movie, he said, initially it was a wonderful Cinderella story with a nine-year-old boy. We had a pretty good script by Bill Goldman, charming, and this ludicrous hype machine got a hold of it and got buried under bullshit. It it was so overwhelmed with baggage, and then it was whipped out, unedited, practically assembled right out of the camera. It was in the theater five or six weeks after I finished shooting. It was kamikaze, stupid, no good reason for it, and then to open the week after Jurassic Park, God, to get the depth of bad judgment involved that you in that, you'd need a snorkel. So... Even it it wow. was it was a movie that Dude. got away from got away from the director for sure for sure, but I still think it's a good movie. I think despite all of that, um, there are a lot of movies that are a big deal when they come out that you just never hear anything about. Avatar and Avatar is a good movie, but some things they just kind of disappear. And I think this one's kind of finding its its audience again. And I don't think it it's had an an audience for a while. I think that people have rediscovered it. And, and I think that you mentioning the fandom culture is much bigger and much more mainstream than it is. And is sort of embracing those elements of this movie. I was going to say, I'm almost happy that it didn't get fixed because a yeah. lot of the things that make it made it so iconic and like that. I'm probably, I didn't expect to want to go watch this movie again. I think I actually might go, you know, at some point in the future and just kind of chill and have it on the background yeah. now or <clears throat> have it on in the background now, because the the things that I think maybe that they think in retrospect were rushed, I actually quite enjoy. So yeah, I mean, obviously we we did we're not going to see that original version of the movie. We only have the one we have. I think there was one uh, there was one moment that I uh, like I said this is movies that came after that uh, obviously echoed shades of Last Action Hero. But I was thinking a lot about JCVD, the Jean Claude Van Damme movie that is also self referential. Where there's a point in time when. Um, JCVD does a soliloquy essentially about how he lost his chance of being the great action hero that he thought he could have and no one wanted to hire him anymore and I felt like that was that sort of meta reference of an actor willing to sort of have some perspective on their own success or or lack thereof was sort of like well this is something that's new I mean that they would never they wouldn't talk they probably I'm trying to think if there was ever a movie where an actress started themselves before this, and it became a commentary about like, like oh my my career, my career in the movies. It it just seems totally unique, and it and it shows up. It's a sort of thing that maybe it was a flop, yes, but I think it's it has shown up many many times afterwards. What they've done with it, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think maybe when you're trying a new thing, the first time is destined to be a failure. That people will try it and they'll they'll tweak it and they'll do things to it and then it'll work suddenly. That sort of thing would only work with a specific type of actor, though. I think that's oh, why yeah. it worked as well with Arnold as it did. Because if you have these characters in the public consciousness that are kind of one, or the actors are kind of one-dimensional in a way because they always do very similar roles, yeah. that would be a point at which it would be 
a good idea to maybe explore that. Yeah, because he is something to somebody that it isn't like when you say, I don't know, Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. Cary Grant is a bunch of different things in all of his movies. And you could do this movie with a character that's Cary Grant, but you'd have to do a specific movie with him. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know, like North by Northwest, if somebody jumped into North by Northwest. Mm. But you couldn't do it and make it a commentary on him as an actor because that's just one thing he did. Where Arnold, Arnold is famous for doing one thing, and that's, you know, explosions and bad puns and violence and kind of cartoon reality. And that's a that's a weirder world, and you can contrast that with the real world so much more easily. So are you thinking we should find the guy that did, like, the Ernest movies? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and just give him a really good role where he plays himself. and Jim Varney? Oh, I've got oh. some bad news. Yes. <laughs> or, wait, so we need to do a weekend at Bernie's? Yes. Also... <laughs> yes. Oh. I, I think I, if I want to talk about this, I, there's only one... There was one aspect of this movie on rewatching it again where I felt that it was um, regrettable and dated and hurt the movie, and that is the soundtrack. Ah, because how dare you? Because there is <laughs> like the ACDC song. This is the only movie that I know of where there's a Megadeth song in the movie, um, and it's not. I, I love that music. Of course, I absolutely love the music, but it dates it so hard. <laughs> this movie is so the entire dated. movie is dated yeah. yeah i think it could be considered a strength because it feels like it's of a certain era we think of what is an 80s action movie um and this kind of has that vibe it's an early 90s one but it's still there's a lot of dna of the 1980s just smeared all over the yeah, screen what, yeah what i found a lot more like crunchy in terms of trying to like how well or bad it aged like i totally could roll with the music because like hmm. yeah early 90s late 80s action film but it was all of like the sort of flash in the pan stars that were around oh, that, yeah. like the girl from the cherry pie video i think is in the video store at one point sweet cherry angie, pie. angie yeah. everhart is it angie everhart yeah, okay i think uh, she, I yeah but um like the those sort of like actors that i recognized when i was right. like nine and yeah. then i'm like it's yeah i don't even know who angie everhart is so like that the lady that was in the thing i like, really like i said i think that this there's a lot of entertainment tonight in this yeah. in right. this movie which is like not only that it literally is but if it'd be like oh i recognize you know damon wayans is in there or whatever because they're just like oh you'd see a clip of them at a Hollywood party that shows up in Entertainment Tonight or something like right. that. Yeah, it's a, it's a different pre-internet world where yeah. we need their PR people to tell them things about uh, to us. <laughs> right. Where nowadays uh, they can just be an asshole on Twitter at three a.m. And, <laughs> and you're well, like and instantly recognizable. Yeah, where you're just like, oh, okay, I think I know everything I need to know about James Woods. <laughs> <laughs> and right. you, don't, you don't need the gatekeeper of Entertainment Tonight to to learn about that sort of stuff. Um, they they have that direct access now, so it is kind of kind of kitschy and and strange and anachronistic in a weird sort of way to see entertainment tonight where it's like somebody like John Tesh is like a big deal. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> you leave John Tesh alone. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say yes. The one thing that surprised me, I mean, given the the disillusion of the marriage, it's a little sad, but I did like the Maria Shriver playing sort of like riding him hard and being like. Don't plug the don't plug the restaurant or the gym. It's embarrassing. <laughs> that part I was like, that's good. I don't know. I don't know if like uh, who wrote that in there, but that was pretty spot on. It was like you'd imagine. I'm hoping it was her. That she's just like, yeah, I should just you know just nag don't. a bit. And he immediately does, and she has to take him by the arm and pull him away from the camera. 
just like he immediately starts talking about oh and we have all this stuff at planet hollywood and you're just like oh god it's like please honey don't do that it's tacky oh so i guess that's time for us to ask the two big questions the first one is last action hero a good movie yes absolutely <laughs> <laughs> I found it really enjoyable and I tend to over scrutinize movies and I I really liked I like I mean and we're I was watching it obviously to prepare for a podcast so I'm like all right I better take notes right. but I actually just event I eventually put the notepad down and just kind of hung out and watched it and I had a really good time like I watched it with a couple of friends and we were all like joking and making dumb nineties references. So like the experience itself and the film itself was really enjoyable. So. Yeah. I, I, I think it is a great movie and I think it's a, for people who love movies, especially it becomes a more rewarding experience. And I just think there's a lot of, there's just a lot of clever stuff. The writing is good and there's a lot of clever stuff that is sort of interwoven through the story that make it, you know, there are parts when you think it's going to start dragging, but then something else interesting happens and it keeps pulling you along. And it doesn't have to do it at the clip of like a J.J. Abrams movie. It does it because you're leading up to this sort of realization of, well, how's Jack Slater going to, you know, going to going to meet himself? And what's that going to mean? You know, when he realizes what he is. The, Great movie. I was going to say the plot gives you kind of complicated stuff, but never does it in a way that's heavy handed or like pretentious yeah. like it's still a fun movie to watch on its own and even the stuff that would you would fault a worse movie for like do too much expositional dialogue is excused because they're in a dumbass action movie exactly yeah. so when you know when frank practice comes <laughs> in play, played by f murray abraham comes in and does like lots of exposition of like oh i'm eating government donuts now my friend you know <laughs> like setting that up it's okay it's okay because it's a dumb like formulaic action movie that's ridiculous but they have sort of the rule of threes which he always has that line to sort of make fun of his last name whenever he enters a scene and he <laughs> says like you know like like hey how do you get to carnegie hall and the guy goes oh, practice and he turns around <laughs> and they even have a sort of a twist on that when he reveals himself as a traitor and um Danny even has an action movie line where he says, how do you get to Carnegie Hall in a body bag creep or something like that? And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I really like this movie, too. Um, it's better than its reputation. I I liked it more than I thought I would. And I, I thought it was going to be a pretty good movie. I think it. the more I find myself talking about it, it may be kind of close to Lost Masterpiece for Arnold. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it and no, oh, and it's like this should be one of his movies that he gets a lot of a credit for, but I think that it didn't at the time. It's a movie that is genuinely clever. There's a lot of great dialogue, like the bit where uh, Benedict shows up at the door and he has that exchange with Arnold and stuff like that, and he says something like. I can snap my fingers, and tomorrow afternoon you will emerge from several canine recta. <laughs> <laughs> they had to work in the plural of rectum. <laughs> Which great. I love. I, I want to ask, though, so as um, you mentioned it being a lost masterpiece, and as someone who's not as familiar with Arnold's body of work, are there any other movies that are comparable to that for him? No, because I think they were probably popular and famous immediately. Even the ones after Last Action Hero? Um, I think there's a couple. I think okay. Commando is probably as close to it. Maybe Running Man, where they just don't come up in popular mm -hmm. conversation as often. Okay. Where everyone thinks Terminator, Conan the Barbarian, Predator, mm -hmm. Total Recall. That's kind mm -hmm. of like 
the trifecta okay. of of a quadrifecta of quadrifecta. Ar- of Arnold movies. And I think a lot of other ones are just kind of like, oh, that one's fun. I want to watch a racer. I want to watch, you know, you know, Red Heat or something. Mm-hmm. Those ones do come up. But I think this one kind of went under the radar and, and not just that it disappeared or faded away. I think it was sort of intentionally broomed under a rug oh. and that people have tried to move away from it and yeah. tried to intentionally yeah. forget it. And I think the fact that we live in a world with the Internet where somebody can put up a clip of the movie on YouTube and they go, oh, wow, that's actually really good. I want to watch the rest of that. And the, the clip I always have, of course, is, is Benedict testing his theory about whether he can get away with crime in the middle of the right. street. Yeah. <laughs> it's so well done. And it's and Charles Dance, of course, is a top three Arnold villain. Yeah. He's incredible in this movie. And watching this movie makes me retroactively angry that he didn't become a big star and that we had to wait another 20 years for him to become famous on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Because he's spectacular in this movie. I, he, I, I just had a thought here, uh, knowing that in the next few years you have like Eraser and you have True Lies and whatnot that comes after End of Days and then he sort of becomes the governor. I I could think you could make a case for this being the last really great Arnold Arnold movie. It's up there. I because I mean, what do you have that's coming up? You got collateral damage. You know, you've got uh, True Lies. I think True Lies Six is a, Day. I think True Lies is very close to being in the quadrifecta. Okay, but I All think right, so th- we'll talk about that on the True Lies panel. But oh, I'm just, I'm just thinking this this might have this might have unseated my top three. Oh unseated, wow, unseated Whoa. position three in my top three Arnold movies. Now that I saw it again, I realized how much I liked it. I think it's top ten for me for sure. Pay yeah. attention at home. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's. I did not expect to like this as much as I did. So I guess that we get into the second question, which is, of course, is Last Action Hero a good Arnold movie? Well, I don't know much of. As I was saying earlier, I haven't seen tons and tons of them. I want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like you guys who are more familiar with that sort of thing are starting to it sounds like you're going to say yes, basically. I I I would. Okay. I would. And I think a lot of it is I think it it understands Arnold. I the places where Arnold is used poorly don't understand his strengths or they try to make him into something like one of the things we bring up on this show a lot is that when Arnold gets signed to a movie, you can tell that they probably give the screenplay another rewrite mm-hmm. to fit it to Arnold because Arnold is a very specific creature mm-hmm. that you kind of have to cater to so that he fits the ecosystem of the world you're making. Like End of Days, we talked about that. Yeah. This was probably um, another devil movie. You're like, well, no, now that Arnold is the star of this devil movie, he's got to have a grenade launcher. Or I'd imagine they might start the script with him in mind in the first place. Exactly. It'd be yeah. a very different movie. Well, this movie was absolutely written. Exactly. The first draft was written with a Arnold Schwarzenegger parody as the character, as mm-hmm. the character. He was exactly. Ar- he was Arno Slater and not uh, Jack Slater. Yeah, he was very much an Arnold character. I, I'd say that the bits that, that I really love, there's a quality that I think we haven't dropped by name in a very long time but i think we need to bring it up again for this movie which is of course absurd macho bullshit Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh there is so much absurd macho bullshit in this movie um the action sequences i mentioned before i particularly like the death by ice cream cone death by electrocuted corpse um stuff that he just has a level of strength that would put him in league with Mm Spider-Man where you, but you buy it because Arnold himself visually is kind of a special effect. So you just kind of go with it. So if he punches through a windshield, you don't think anything of it. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's, he has, and again, that's Arnold's magical ability to shatter the resistance to, um, what is the term that I'm thinking of? The, um, the, the disbelief that he shatters mm-hmm. that, that you just go, yeah, I'm going with it. Of course he can do that. Of course he can do these in, impossible things because look at him. He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> um, and this movie really kind of revels in that in a way that only the best Arnold movies do, which is like, of course he can, he can wade through all these guys. Of course he can get away with, with uh, punching the Lieutenant governor, which to me is <laughs> the best moment in that movie. There's some great, <laughs> From great catchphrases, this movie is full of puns. Yeah. But there's a moment at the beginning, it takes place during the climax of Jack Slater 3, where there's a hostage situation on the roof of a school, and the Ripper, who's this crazy axe murderer, has kidnapped a bunch of kids, including Arnold's son. And Arnold walks into the scene by walking on the roofs of police cars, <laughs> and immediately screaming police captain is like, no, Slater, no, 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 you're not going to be a part of this. And then the mayor of Los Angeles, played by Tina Turner, is like, hey, yes. we can't, she's like pleading with Arnold to not get involved. It's the best cameo ever, by the way. And she yeah. introduces him to the the lieutenant governor. Arnold immediately punches the lieutenant governor in the face <laughs> and has one of, I think, the best Arnold line deliveries of all time, where he just walks away and throws the line away going, when the governor gets here, call me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I totally missed that. It's... <laughs> so beautiful the way he throws that line away it's just like yeah not my problem <laughs> that to me was like that is a great arnold moment that i think is comparable to any in his career and i just get so happy when i see that part so yes absolutely this is a great arnold movie. yeah it's a great arnold movie it has all the tropes that we t- arnold tropes that we talk about the one-liners, the ex- incredible over-the-top explosions and action I, stuff. I feel like I have to mention before we wrap up the the teenage daughter with the monster truck. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. That's Sonya from the Mortal Kombat movie, by the oh, way. Okay. Yeah. I also kind of like that when she's being attacked in her room, she's <laughs> screaming as if she's being the victim while she's using it as cover to beat <laughs> to this beat guy the up. Crap out yeah. of the guy. Yeah. That was pretty cool. Okay. Yeah there there are so many there are so many elements that. Uh, I mean, this is a movie about Arnold movies, essentially. And so, and I think John McTiernan does a very capable job of making him kind of dumb and stupid and and unbelievable, but making it still making it entertaining in the way that you want it to be entertaining. I have to say, because I just remembered this, <laughs> I think that this movie actually, instead of just drudging up old tro- old tropes, I think this movie created an action movie trope that we see all the time now. So when you're on, when they're on the roof of that school, the uh, the Ripper throws his axe and in slow motion he ducks under it, just narrowly not hitting his head in slow motion. Oh, it's pre Matrix. It's pre Matrix. I'm sure that that was in some Hong Kong action movie. I'm sure, but in an American movie, I think that's probably the first usage of that. And now you see it in literally everything. Uh-oh. There's always a blade going in slow motion, and the hero ducks just underneath it, you know, gets a close shave or whatever. Yeah, because that, w- that was definitely new. So, I think that, also, a quick aside, um, Death from the Seventh Seal is still wandering the streets of New York. Yes. <laughs> he never goes back to his movie. That explains so much about New York. Oh, God. Oh, God, what if he's responsible for 9-11? <gasps> conspiracy, conspiracy. That's why no one's allowed to watch The Last Action Hero. Oh, oh. man. They were trying to cover that shit up. <laughs> 
I, I want to know what happened to the giant, like, 40-foot-tall blow-up Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, man. Because I, I want it. I'd put it in my backyard if it was still around. Let's could, check Chicky. You could convert it into, like, a bouncy castle and rent it out for, like, children's holiday or birthday parties. I'll bet you it ended up at a used car lot, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, God, the yeah. best used car lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, Roz, I want to thank you again, Roz Townsend, for joining us. Thank um, you. Are there any projects that you're working on online? I know you've got a Patreon you want to plug real quick. I freelance as an illustrator, and I'm trying to do 27 different comic ideas at once, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, check out my Patreon, and you might see half of a comic book page once every six months. Awesome. <laughs> so where do they find that Patreon? Uh, it's patreon.com slash roslintheface. All right. Excellent. And thank you so much for joining us, Rosalind Townsend. And a special thanks to all of our episode sponsors. Uh, we have five of them this month. That's amazing. Oh, God, it's great. Uh, Margaret King, Larry Brunswick, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, and Sterling Taylor. Thank you guys so much for continuing to support us. And if you want to be one of those lucky people that's an episode sponsor, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians, or just a link on our website. Uh, it's a big red button on podcastalavistababy.com. Check us out. Thank you, folks. We'll see you next month. Podcast La Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel, with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. Hey, Claudius. You killed my father. Big mistake. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And Hamlet is taking out the trash. Stay thy hand, fair prince. Who said I'm fair? No one's going to tell this sweet prince good night. To be or not to be. Not to be.